Funding for this podcast comes from the members of Massachusetts Public Radio and the John A. and Maria L. Douglas Foundation, supporting investigative journalism on public radio stations across America, and from listeners like you. Mermaids of Murrow's Cove is a serial podcast. Please be sure to listen to the episodes in order. This is Episode 2, Troublemaker. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the podcast in iTunes. This is the first suspicious death in town in the last hundred years. I didn't kill Alice Crocker. We are a quiet community, and you have always been loud. The whole sweet town doctor thing is an act. Emma, this is Jacqueline, Nurse Russo. I didn't do it. I didn't kill Alice Crocker. When I walked into her room, she was already dead, and he was standing over her body. I didn't kill her, I swear to God. He did it, and he will try to blame me, so I'm leaving. I I was loyal, and I did my part as I was taught. But at the end of the day, we are all disposable. Women, we are all disposable in this town. Don't trust anybody, Emma. They are all a part of it. He killed her. Dr. Ananda killed her. It's been a week since our first episode aired and almost two weeks since Alice Crocker was found dead in her hospital bed. As of now, I have very few details of the circumstances in which she died. The police have been, to put it lightly, less than forthcoming. I've been asked by Massachusetts Public Radio to remain in Murrow's Cove until the murder investigation is closed. I don't know how long that's going to be, but I think it'll be a while. The thing is, The murder of Alice Crocker is just one of many pieces of this puzzle. I think that Alice was not as traumatized as the other victims. I think she had something to say, and that's why she was killed. I think that the town where I grew up has more secrets than I ever imagined, and now I have to uncover them. I'm Emma Kersey. You're listening to Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. You're not sleeping? I am not. You talked to her. It must have been tough. She told me she was in danger, and I said nothing. You asked the chief to investigate, and he refused? I didn't tell him she thought she was in danger. Well, you can't go down that road, Emma. What happened is terrible, but it isn't your fault. Now come on, let's do our job and find out whatever happened to Alice. The last two weeks have been challenging, not only as a reporter, but also as a resident of Murrow's Cove. The town was shaken by the death of Alice Crocker, and I know my investigation is making people uneasy. I discovered in the last week that there are many who would rather that I go away, some of them even members of my own family. Murrow's Cove is not the kind of place that likes to attract attention. People are worried my investigation will do just that. Their worst nightmare is a TV van parked in the town's green. I don't know how much of what happens here gets to the outside world. Sometimes I feel as though Murrow's Cove exists in an alternative reality, isolated from the rest of the country. Here you don't see teenagers walking with their heads down, staring at little screens. 
don't get me wrong, we do have the internet. I can access Facebook and Skype with my boss. Still, it feels different. Reality feels suspended. When I was in college, people often asked me to describe my hometown. I would always say, did you see Pleasantville, the Reese Witherspoon movie? Yeah, that's my town. And not to compare myself with the Oscar winner, but I've been considered the hormone-driven troublemaker, too. The night Mark called me, everybody in town received a call from a friend, a neighbor, or a family member who had heard the tragic news. By the time I got to the clinic, the crowd around the beaming red and blue lights of the police cars was the biggest I've ever seen in town. Excuse me, excuse me, please, let me through. I'm a reporter. Watch out, young lady. Sorry, I'm just trying to get to the front. That's the cursey girl. Mark, Mark, right here. Hi, Emma. Nice to see you. I mean, not great to see you under the circumstances, but you get it. Yeah, uh, I wish it was in a different setting. A crime scene is not a great place to catch up. It's not officially a murder scene. So you think she committed suicide? I don't know. My dad... I mean, the chief took the lead on this. This is the first suspicious death in town in the last hundred years. He wants to be involved and make sure we figure out what happened as soon as possible. Well, I guess that's a good thing. Is there anything you can tell me? There is a lot of blood. That's as much as I got. So, it was violent? It was a gruesome scene. I I didn't see the body. I can't tell you if it was violent, but there was blood on the walls and in every other surface of her room. I was talking to Mark when my phone rang. I didn't recognize the number, so I let it go to voicemail. That was the message you heard at the beginning of the show. Probably the call I'll regret my whole life that I didn't take. Chief Delaney and Dr. Ananda declined to speak to me or any other reporter for that matter. More than 10 days have passed and still not one official statement. Somehow, nobody thinks that's strange. Not having any access to the specifics of the murder, I decided it was time to learn more about Alice Crocker. And the only person who could have new information was the woman who found her, Meredith Matthews. Meredith Matthews was my Sunday school teacher, and she always reminded me of a munchkin. She's taller than the Oz citizens, but had a round face and a high-pitched voice just an octave lower than Alvin and the Chipmunks. Her eyes are a deep shade of green that get even darker when the day is cloudy. When we were kids, she told us her eyes changed colors depending on her mood. The morning we spoke, they were the darkest I'd ever seen them. She was not surprised when I knocked on her door. I was wondering when you would show up. Hi, Mrs. Matthews. I'm going to record our conversation. Do you mind? No, that's fine. Let's take a walk on the beach. I need to get my steps. This bracelet my daughter gave me beeps when I'm lazy. We walked down the steps that lead to the beach in front of her house. It was a chilly morning, but the breeze coming from the ocean was invigorating. 
I haven't really taken the time to describe Moreau's Cove to you. I guess part of me thinks the geography of the town is not that relevant when you have a serial kidnapper and murderer to catch. I can tell you this though, Moreau's Cove is beautiful. And I don't just say that because I grew up here and I have fond memories. The sand in the beaches is dark, but soft. The ocean is an intense blue like you will not see anywhere else in New England. The town is a postcard, quaint and old-fashioned, maybe even too perfect to be true. We're surrounded by mountains and trees. In the summer, Moreau's Cove is green, blue, and bright. In the fall, a golden crown of yellow, red, and brown leaves sits all around us. Winters are snowy and cold. What can you tell me about Alice Crocker? She was a mermaid. Do you really believe that? You know I'm a Catholic. And I don't believe in that stuff, but you didn't see that girl. That girl was not human. No matter what the doctor said or what he did afterward to make her look human. There was something about her. Something wrong. Unsettling. I, I don't know how to describe it. Except that she was not fully human. I feel silly asking this, but does she have a tail? Don't mermaids lose their tails when they come out of the water? Didn't you see Splash? I didn't, but I should, I guess. Why do you believe the doctor did something to make her look human? That's what he does. I, I don't care if he hears me say it on your show. The whole sweet town doctor thing is an act. What do you mean by that? He covers up things. He hides things from people. He did it to me. To you? Can you tell me more about that? You're too young to remember. And people don't talk about it. People pretend it never happened. He killed my son, Peter. He killed him? Not literally, but not with his own hands, but he was responsible. He refused to give a real diagnosis until it was too late. He thought it was shameful for Marrow's Cove to have someone with AIDS, so he let my Peter die. I didn't know you had a son. I'm so sorry. Thank you. I don't talk about it. it. It still hurts. I can imagine. So he contracted AIDS and Dr. Ananda refused to treat him? We didn't know what AIDS was. Back then, few people knew. Even in the big cities, people were clueless. I didn't know my son was a homosexual. Ananda knew. He knew why he was getting sick all the time. How do you know he knew? He's a damn doctor! He had to know! When did you realize it was AIDS? When it was too late! Once the disease showed in his skin, we knew. We had seen it on TV, but then it was too late. Peter was so skinny and so weak by then. Dr. Ananda sent him away. He said it was contagious and Peter was putting the entire community at risk. My boy died in less than a month in a hospital room in Boston. I was next to him. And I wish the disease was contagious. Dying didn't seem like a bad thing at the moment. Meredith started crying, so I stopped recording. She was right. I was too young to remember. I never heard the story. I didn't even know she had a son. I went to school with her daughter, Laura, and Laura never talked about having a brother. 
I didn't ask more questions. We walked in silence back to her house. The sound of the waves and the seagulls was all we could hear. Before I left, she stopped me and shared something she had just remembered. She said Alice had something in her hands the morning she found her. It looked like a rock, a white, shiny rock. I don't know if that detail is relevant or not. I'll ask the chief about it, even though I don't think I'll get a straight answer. After meeting with Meredith, I called John and asked him to meet me at my parents' house. I asked you to join me because I want you to help me talk this through and figure out what to do next. Ooh, I'm here to serve. You are such a dork. Hmm. Does this recorder make you nervous? A little. Okay, then. What do we know? Alice was murdered. The police haven't confirmed it, but we do have a source who says she saw the perpetrator. We don't know if Nurse Russo is telling the truth, though. We don't. We do have two people now who say the doctor is shady. I don't know. I've known Dr. Ananda my whole life. He is old-fashioned, but I, I believe Meredith. His bias and maybe ignorance may have gotten in the way of treating her son, but I have a hard time believing he is a killer. Come on, killers don't look like killers. Some do. Moving on. Based on your conversation with Alice and that old creep, Merlord, there may be an entire cover-up conspiracy to keep the mermaids a secret. I think that if there is a conspiracy, and I'm not sure that there is, it is to keep the kidnappings a secret. The two people who insinuated some kind of collusion may have been mentally ill. I don't know how serious we can take their statements. Eh, fair enough. What are our next steps? You get information from the police while I continue looking into the mermaid theory. You are Benson. I'm Mulder. They're not in the same show. You know that, right? You mean you are Mulder and I am Scully. Oh, I know they're not in the same show. This is <laughs> a crossover. So, you know, no, no. Don't people love crossovers? Dork. Call your boyfriend. He could be a good source. Mark. He's not my boyfriend, and no way. I'm not using Mark to get a story. I'm not suggesting you use him. I'm suggesting now that, yeah, you know, like, you just ask him to help. I doubt he would go against his father's orders. Well, why don't you ask instead of answering now on his behalf? I decided to ask Mark. What's the worst that could happen, besides facing the wrath of the police chief and potentially getting kicked out of town? The truth was, I was out of sources. Before I share my oddly charming conversation with Mark, I have to tell you about a surprising phone call I got. Hello? Emma, it's Nurse Russo. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. Uh, I want your help. I think you may be my only chance of not becoming a fugitive. Nobody's accusing you of anything. They're not even calling it murder. <laughs> but they will, and I will be the main suspect. Maybe you should not have skipped town. Maybe you should come back here. You really have no idea who you're dealing with. Then tell me. All in good time. I need to know that I can trust you. This is the deal. You work to prove Dr. Ananda did it, and I will give you information as we go. I can't promise you that I'm going to work to prove that the doctor is guilty. I can only promise you that I'll investigate who did it. That's good enough for me. If you tell me 
everything that you know right now, it'll be easier to find the murderer. Then you won't need me anymore. Start with your cousin, Henry. Henry? What do you mean? Dr. Nanda called him right after you left the clinic and asked him to keep an eye on you. Are you sure? Ask him why he always does what the doctor tells him to do. The revelation that Henry or anybody in my family could be involved was disturbing. I don't know if I can trust Nurse Russo, though. Leaving town right after a murder is, at the very least, suspicious. I confronted Henry about Jacqueline's accusation. Needless to say, it did not go well. You don't mind if I record our conversation, do you? Do you, do you need to do that? Uh, well, I'm recording all my conversations with Morose Cove residents. You never know when something interesting can come up. Okay, then. But people won't like that. You know how we are around here. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear that all the time. I don't know how I can help you. I'm just the IT guy for the town. You do IT for the entire town? Yeah. Uh, I fix everyone's laptops, install internet, set up cash registers, a little bit of everything. Good for you. <clears throat> um, I don't know how to smoothly transition to this, so I'm just going to come out and ask you. Why did Dr. Ananda ask you to follow me? Well, he didn't. Why would he? Henry, I love you. You're my cousin. We grew up together. And you're probably my closest cousin. But things are very confusing right now for me. I know he asked you to keep an eye on me. Just tell me why. Oh, okay, okay. Don't get mad and all paranoid. He was concerned you were going around town starting trouble. What? Why? <laughs> cousin, you have a reputation. You're kind of a troublemaker. You always were. People started talking when your mom told them about you were coming to do the mermaid story. You have a reputation. I'm reporting a story. The only people who will consider that trouble are those involved in a crime. No, Emma. Everyone worries because you are intense. Remember that time you went on hunger strike because our high school decided not to celebrate Black History Month? That was messed up and racist. But there were no black people in town. Black History Month is not only for black people, it's for everybody. Anyways. The point is, we are a quiet community, and you have always been loud. The doctor wanted me to talk to you about it. He thought you would listen to me, because you're close. But you didn't say anything. Uh, I got scared. Of me? You, you really get intense, like right now. But since you're always yelling at me, I'm telling you. Stop bothering people. Go back to Boston and find a murder to investigate there. I'm sure you'll have plenty. How do you know it's a murder? See, there it is. Now I'm a murder suspect on your dumb show. I don't know if it is a murder, and I don't care. I didn't know the girl. Nobody knew her. Who cares why she died? Stop being a pain in the ass, Emma. Where are you going? I'm done talking to you. I will talk to your mom. You're telling on me? Are we six? Henry did tell my mom, and I had to hear it from both of my parents. As a result, I decided that I will not continue to stay with my parents for the duration of this investigation. They're not happy with my decision, but I can't let my family's preconceptions affect my work. I'll be getting a room at the Harbor Inn where John is staying. The good thing about an inn in a town where nobody visits is that there's always rooms available. I asked John to accompany me on a walk on the beach to clear my mind and hear about his research into the mermaid's tales. Moving to a hotel is kind of a big deal. 
I know, but it's for the best. Asher, are your parents mad at you? Furious. But we're not here to talk about my parents. I want to know if you were able to find anything else on our friend Patrick Fitzgerald. Are we doing this on the beach now in the hopes that a mermaid will show up and tell us all about the Fitzgerald's life in America? (laughs) No, the beach just helps me think. So, are we sure he came to America? As sure as you can be when all your sources are message boards and internet sites run by amateur investigators that happen to also now be mermaid fans. That's not very reassuring. I don't know. We nerds are resourceful. I wouldn't dismiss the work of these mermaid enthusiasts now. Well, okay then. Why did Mr. Fitzgerald come to America? Sure, now there are different versions. Some say he was afraid his ex-wife or of her relatives that they were coming for his half-mermaid daughter. Others say he was dying of sadness and his daughter recommended they leave Ireland and move to the farthest place they could get away to. Do we know her name? Not yet. Any clue about his life here? Sure, you know, I found pictures of a document that looks like an old diary about a man with a daughter who was obsessed by the sea. Fitzgerald? Potentially. What does it say? What does the document say? It tells a story of a mysterious Irishman in a town, sure, you know, and it sounds a lot like yours. The entries are short, you're a bit childish and sporadic. There's no name attached to the document, so we don't know who wrote it. The writer met Fitzgerald? The owner of the diaries is actually a young man, maybe even a teenager. And he met an Irish fella who had a weird daughter, and doesn't she fit the description? He wasn't very fond of them. And you know what? He actually blames them for the many tragedies in his town. We asked our friend Nick Johnson from Waves 95.5 to read the allegedly 200-year-old document for you. We didn't make any changes to the diary entries. We want to be faithful to the writer, even when the writing makes very little sense. January 10th, 1812. I heard them talking about founding a new town, a place past the rocky shore. The Irishman talked about treasures. He promised the men listening to him their families would never go hungry again. He also talked about a price, a small price, a gift he called it. The fishermen are ignorant and poor. They're desperate and scared. Their boats have come back empty for weeks now. They don't see it, but I do. The boats have come back empty since the Irishman and his daughter came into town. The men are starving, and starving men make poor decisions. The Irishman is a thief. He will take all they have, and they will never see this paradise he promises. You can't trust the Irish. Everybody knows that. January 12th, 1812. I am not to warn the fishermen. I spoke with Reverend Smith, and he agrees with me. The Irish cannot be trusted, but we have no proof of his wickedness except for his origin, and that is not enough. The Reverend asked me to pray for their souls. I've prayed very hard and very long, but I don't think God is listening. The entire town is mesmerized by the man with red hair and his beautiful and quiet daughter. He said his wife left them. The idea of a woman abandoning her husband and daughter inspired pity and admiration. 
Mrs. Wrights said he is probably a saint. She said that any other man would have married the daughter and started a new family. He is not a saint, and neither is his daughter. January 20th, 1812. I believe his daughter is a witch. Reverend Smith ordered me not to use that word. He says she is just a woman. Women are wicked by nature, and as a young, sensitive man, I can feel that. I still believe she is a witch. I found her the other night staring at the ocean and mumbling, as if she was praying, but not praying to God, but to the sea. I watched her for over an hour. I was waiting for her to fly or conjure lightning as witches do, but she didn't. She just stood there, talking to the waves as if they could understand her. It was a clear night, clear enough to see every crease on her pale lips. A thin creature like her should not have the lips of a wench. She stopped praying when the ocean started staring her back. From the dark water, hundreds of glowing eyes emerged. I did not imagine it. They came to greet her. She prayed to them and they came. January 22nd, 1812. The witch was dancing on the beach at midnight. She was naked. Her skin was white as winter snow and her hair long and silky. As I got closer, I realized she was also singing. Her voice was soft and soothing. She was singing in a language I couldn't understand. The eyes in the ocean stared at her. There was splashing. They were clapping as she danced. It was a celebration. The witch was dancing naked for them, and they were happy. The demons she summoned were rejoicing like God does when we pray. Bewitched by her song, I walked until I was almost close enough to touch her. Her body, twirling in the sand, was all I could see at the end of a black tunnel. It wasn't blinking. My mouth was dry and my entire body numb. When she saw me, she stopped. She stared at me for a second, then laughed and ran away. She ran naked through the beach until she was gone. January 22nd, 1812. Reverend Smith asked me to fast and pray to God for forgiveness. He believes I imagined it all. He believes I have impure desires for the witch. He asked me if I touched myself thinking of her, and I told him it wasn't on purpose. I told him it was witchcraft. She made me do it. I've prayed for forgiveness, but she appears in front of me like a vision. I can hear her laugh even though she is not there. She has cursed me. She has cursed me with impure thoughts. The witch dances naked in front of the ocean, and the demons haunting our town rejoice. We don't know if those are the words of a child, a madman, or a novelist. We don't know if the man he's referring to is Patrick Fitzgerald, and the town he founded is Murrow's Cove. What we do know is that it's intriguing. We'll read more of these entries in future episodes. Our mysterious 19th century man's story is fascinating and disturbing.
My investigation needed more than folk stories, so against my better judgment, I called Mark. John was right. Mark was a potential source. We agreed to meet. He insisted on having this conversation in person. I can't lie, it didn't take a lot to convince me. Did we really need to meet in a different town? I didn't want to run into your dad. Besides, it's only 10 minutes away. In his civilian clothing, Mark looked even more like the guy I dated in my youth. He was wearing a pair of faded jeans, a Red Sox t-shirt, and a matching baseball hat. That was Mark Delaney's traditional uniform before he had a policeman's uniform. All through high school, that was all Mark ever wore, jeans and his favorite team's t-shirt. There was something comforting in his predictability. I couldn't help but wonder if he had chosen the outfit on purpose, just to make me remember him as he was, or if his taste in clothing had not evolved in the last decade. Why didn't you want to run into my dad? Well, he asked me not to go out with you. He meant more like on a date kind of way, not like this is a date or anything. It's not? Damn. I thought it was odd we didn't have pizza and beer. (laughs) Your dad still hasn't forgiven me for ruining his son and his new frog. That's the point. (laughs) He knows I'm old to grudge. But you know I'm not 16 anymore. He doesn't get a say on who I see and who I don't. Well, that's nice to know. You're recording, so I assume we're here on official business. Yeah, kind of. I want to ask you a favor. I can't speak about an ongoing investigation. I understand that. But is there anything you can tell me, though? Her cause of death. Can you describe the murder scene for me? Why didn't you answer my emails after we went to college? Because I was mad at you. Can we just stick to the investigation, please? I know you were, but I was 16. You do what your parents say when you're 16. No, you don't. Normal people don't. Teenagers do exactly the opposite of what their parents say. Are you mad at me because I didn't ask you to run away with me? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Okay, let's do this. But let's do it quick, okay? I was mad because we had a Romeo and Juliet situation here, and you were a lousy Romeo. I was 16 too, Mark. I had some romantic fantasies too. Forbidden love, that was way up there on my list. Sorry for being a lousy Romeo. You're forgiven. Now, seriously, Mark, is there anything that you can tell me about the murder of Alice Crocker? I would be in deep trouble if I do. And for the record, no official statement has been made calling it a murder. No official statement has been made at all. That's highly irregular in a suspicious death investigation. As I said, I can't comment. Fine. I get it. Why did you agree to meet me if you're not going to tell me anything? Emma, don't get mad at me for doing my job. It's just a little frustrating. You know this is really weird, Mark. You're a smart guy. Emma, don't give up, though. I know people are telling you to stop. Don't. Keep asking questions. This town needs more people asking questions. Trust me. The more they tell me to stop, the more I want to do it. You were always stubborn that way. Like that time in eighth grade, you insisted on us stealing those sex ed flyers and passing them out on the school bus? (laughs) I was grounded for a month. Yep. But you figured out how to do it. You figured out how to get what you needed. I always love that about you. Figuring out how to get what you need is your superpower. I'm glad you remember that adventure. No, we did not kiss. At that moment, Mark got a call and apologized for having to leave. 
I sat on that bench for about 20 minutes after he left. Then I remembered. We stole those flyers from Dr. Ananda's office. We snuck into the clinic through a basement window that was kept open to prevent mildew from forming. Don't get any ideas. I would never consider breaking into a murder scene. That's unlawful entry and, I assume, many other related crimes. Massachusetts Public Radio does not endorse their reporters committing crimes in order to advance their investigations. We can't control, though, what others do with their free time. I'm Emma Kersey. This is Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. Mermaids of Murrow's Cove is hosted by Emma Kersey and produced by John Murphy at Massachusetts Public Radio. On the next episode of Mermaids of Murrow's Cove... The death of Alice Crocker has been ruled a suicide. A mermaid wants to talk to you. I can give you what you need, but I need a favor in return. Don't miss the next episode. Like what you're hearing? Please rate and review us in iTunes. And tell your friends about Mermaids of Murrow's Cove. <laughs>